0: Welcome to The Way Church. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For sermon notes, service times, and more information, check us out online at thewaychurchva.com. Now let's join Pastor Matt Rothy with this week's message. What do I have to be thankful for? Those are some of the opening lines to the classic film, A Charlie Brown Thanksgiving. Charlie Brown's sister, Sally, looks at him and says, what do I have to be thankful for? Why do I have to celebrate Thanksgiving? All it does is make more work for us. That's what Sally thinks. And you want to know what I think? I think Sally's right. And I think maybe many of you would agree that Thanksgiving, Christmas, this whole holiday season... It makes a lot of work for us. It makes a lot of work to go travel and see family and friends. And sometimes some of you have to travel multiple times in the same day to have multiple Thanksgiving or Christmas celebrations. There's a lot of work involved to make food, plan which food you're gonna buy, prepare the food. There's a lot of work involved cleaning your house if you're hosting that particular get together. It's a lot of work in the exhausting exercise of just getting kids dressed and out the door. Sally's right. It's a lot of work to celebrate the holidays. Add on top of that, Peppermint Patty's perspective on all of this. Well, it's failed expectations. Peppermint Patty sits down to eat the Thanksgiving meal that Charlie Brown and Snoopy had made. And she sees that it's toast and popcorn. She says, Chuck, where's the mashed potatoes? Where's the turkey? Where's the cranberry sauce? Where's the pumpkin pie? It's comical to think that a couple of kids would make the the turkey, the pumpkin pie, and all of that. But really, my expectations for the holidays are just as comical. I expect that I'm going to go to holiday get-togethers with my family and with friends, and my children are going to eat everything that's put on their plate. I expect that they're gonna go play independently and they're gonna share toys and I'm gonna have deep adult conversations with my family and friends the entire hour that we're there. That doesn't happen either. I expect that I can eat as much pie as I want and there's gonna be no long-term or short-term ramifications for that, but that's not the reality. I expect that I'm gonna have this hallmark holiday celebration, but it just, it doesn't happen. And then there's Charlie Brown's experience. His friends tell him, they don't ask, they tell him that they're coming over to celebrate Thanksgiving. He starts to worry. He starts to stress out. What will happen if he tells them they can't come over? Will he ruin their plans? What will happen if he shows up and he, and he doesn't have all of the right things? It's laughable, but I can relate. I worry about so many additional things this time of year the deadlines. Even the family and friend get-togethers, I, I worry about those. I analyze them after the fact. Did, did everyone have fun? Did, did everyone enjoy themselves? Did people take that the right way? It's enough to make you say good grief, right? So what's one to do? The holidays are hard. Sally is right. Sometimes you feel like Sally, just sulking, complaining, maybe just even avoiding or opting out of the whole thing entirely. Does that actually work? Maybe for the short term. Maybe for the short term, you can not deal with some of the burdensome work. You can not deal with some of the stress or some of the failed expectations. But in the long run, avoiding Thanksgiving, avoiding the celebrations, doesn't actually benefit you. You miss all the good, you miss all of the shared meals with family and friends. You miss all the shared laughs and you miss all of the shared memories. It doesn't really work to avoid it or to opt out, to have a Sally-esque Thanksgiving celebration. And yet, that's the option that a lot of people take in other areas of life. Christians hoping to avoid maybe some of the stress that comes with, with church, well, assess it the same way Sally does and, and choose to opt out. Rightly so, Christians have looked at the church and said, you know what, being a part of a church, doing the church thing, it's a lot of additional work. Sometimes there's failed expectations. We expect the church and the people and the pastors there to act and treat us in a certain way, and it doesn't happen. On top of that, the people there act more like the Peanuts gang than brothers and sisters in Christ. They do things that aren't always kind and considerate towards one another. It has an effect. It has an effect on the entire body of Christ. You've heard me talk about this before, but there is a trend in America that worship is not a regular part of people's lives. Gathering together isn't a thing people do anymore. Just a couple decades ago, it used to be that almost three quarters of people in the country who said that they were a part of a Christian church, said they were regularly a part of that church. They regularly met together, gathered together, and joined in in the church's mission and ministry. But not even two decades later, it's just under 50%. I shared with you how this has been taking an effect even in our own church body, the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod. What happens is that we have been, for the last two decades, losing people in our church, losing churches in our church body. If that continues for just two generations, what that looks like is a church body of 350,000 people going down to a church body of, at best, 150,000 people. A church body that has 1,200 churches, losing 500 of them, almost 700 of them in just two generations. People are opting out, gathering together, meeting together. Well, it's not a trendy thing to do anymore. It's not the norm in Christianity. And oftentimes for some very, very legitimate reasons. It's hard. There's been failed expectations. People don't always treat each other the way Christ does it, the way Christ wants it. But that's nothing new. That's something that the church has been dealing with for, well, as long as it's been around. We read it before. The writer to the Hebrews said this let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. You see, somewhere around the mid 60s AD, the idea of meeting together, gathering together on a day to worship, well, People started questioning that, and particularly this group called Hebrews. Hebrews were the name of people um, who were Israelites, who were Jewish, and they converted to Christianity. And what was happening when these new Christians started to think through how they were going to exercise their faith is they looked at all of their rich past, all of their rich tradition of of observing the Judeo-Christian or the Judeo-law that God gave to his people, the Israelites, including this commandment. Gather together, meet together on the Sabbath day. Don't do any work, rest. Get together with other believers and, and gather together around God's word. And now as new Christians, the Hebrews, they're were, they were asking themselves, so do we still have to do this? Or do I get a whole nother free day for my weekend? I, I don't know what to do. Do we still observe the Sabbath? Do we not? And the writer to the Hebrews says, no, 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 no. Don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. What was happening in 60 AD, it's happening in 2019. And we could talk. This morning about all the reasons why it happens, but this morning I'd like us to consider the issue, to consider the problem uh, from a different perspective. Maybe asking who's responsible for people not meeting together. Is it us or is it some of them? Is it us who are gathered here this morning or is it them? Is it some who are not here? I think it's easy sometimes for us, the church, church leaders, pastors, to maybe assume that, yeah, if they're not here, they are the reason. They're the reason that some have given up meeting, doing this. But to assume that would be condescendingly dismissive and would also, well, squander the chance for a moment of of self-reflection to ask ourselves, is is the church presenting a picture of how God envisioned the church, an inspiring picture of what the kingdom of God ought to be with Jesus Christ as his head and, and this as the church, his body, or do we present a picture that is full of burdensome work, failed expectations, and burdens and stresses and worries. Which is it? Well, I'll suggest this morning that as we look at these that, yeah, the church, us, we, we're equally to blame for this. And, and the reason is this. For the, for the past couple of decades, what we have turned church into is, well, a consumption of, of Christian commodities, where we come to church in order to get a message. We come to church in order to get maybe a, a word of encouragement. We come to church to maybe find something, to find inspiration. And sadly, the, the Christian church as a whole has has put their time and their energy into producing Christian goods, to producing Christian commodities so that people get that and they come and they get what they're looking for. But let me, let me tell you this and... I admit this very hesitantly. If coming to church and hearing a message or, or, or getting a Christian commodity is all church is about, well, you can find someone who gives a better sermon than your pastor. You can find someone online, and this is especially in the digital age, who is more insightful than your pastor. Believe it or not, you can go online and you can maybe listen to a podcast of someone who's actually maybe funnier than your pastor. You can do that. And in the same way that you can do that for a sermon or a sermon message, you can do it for worship music. As good as the way worship band is, the reality is if you wanted to, you could go on Spotify and find someone even better. If It's too loud, you could find someone quieter. If it's too quiet, you could find someone louder. If it's too traditional, you could find something more contemporary. If it's too contemporary, you could find something more traditional. It's all there. In the digital age, what churches have done is made Christianity a commodity, something that we consume, something that we take. But is that all it is? Well, I'll tell you this, that there's one thing that you will find here that that you won't find in a podcast sermon, you won't find online. And that is when you come here and you gather here to hear God's word and to hear a message of God's word, there is someone here, your pastor preaching, who, who A, knows God, knows God's word and studies God's word very intently. And doesn't just know God's word because there's other people who know God's word but also knows you, knows your life, knows What's happening in your life knows the pains that you're going through knows the joys that you're celebrating in your life and what I do is, is something you all do as well we look for opportunities to bring those together to bring what God's word says about him and his love for us with what's going on in your life and you do that for one another as well you know each other and you could you could find community elsewhere you could find it in a club or in a gym you could find it in your place of work and you could even find it online. But there's something that none of those places have to offer that's here. It's people who not only know you, people who not only have a, a shared interest with you, but they know you and they know God. They know your Savior's love and they're committed to you, to committed to sharing that with you in your life. So yeah, when the church simply makes church being a a place for you to go and get Christian goods, yeah, we're part of the problem. But so also are some others, the the individual. Some are at fault because, well, they are influenced by this culture, a a culture and a world that is focused on self-comfort. That, that is focused on self-convenience. That's the world we live in. You don't have to go to school. You can do it online and at home. You don't have to watch Friends when it comes on Thursday nights at eight o'clock anymore, but you can binge watch it on Netflix. You don't even have to watch live events. You don't even have to watch the game at one o'clock on Sunday afternoons, but you can record it and watch it anytime and any place you feel like it. There's a reason why I don't have to go to the mall to buy jeans. I have Amazon Prime. We can have the things we want where it's comfortable and where it's convenient. And we do that, we're tempted to do that with our spiritual eyes too, to make it just one more aspect of our lives that we can enjoy and we can have when it's comfortable, when it's convenient for us. But we forget something, that we're living in the New Testament that we're living in the age of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, where God's presence isn't found just simply being by ourselves, but it's found where God is with his people. It's, It's Christ in us, and it's Christ in those to whom he's given his word. God's presence is found where where two or three or more gather together around God's word. And and there, in them, in them is Christ, his Holy Spirit, and his presence is found in their word. You might say to me, Matt, whoever believes in Jesus, whoever confesses Jesus, they they can be saved, right? Well, yes, theoretically, that's true. But faith is never found in a vacuum. The Apostle Paul says this, he said it in the book of Romans. He said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He admits that. Whoever confesses Jesus will be saved. But then he asks this, he says, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. What the Apostle Paul is saying is this. Yes, people, anyone can call on the name of the Lord and be saved, but how can they be saved? How can they believe if there aren't people? if there aren't people to whom God has given his word, if there aren't people in whom the Holy Spirit dwells, getting together, preaching, proclaiming, telling one another good news, the news about Jesus. Here's our first blank that we're looking at this morning. That without knowing Christians, you cannot know God. And sure, it might work in a vacuum that you could, that you could know God by, by being there in his word. But think about this. There's someone whom you know a Christian who helped you know God at some point in your life. And so it is all the time, without Christians in our life, without knowing other Christians, you cannot know God. And not only that, but without relationships with Christians, there's no obedience to God. With no relationship to other Christians, without knowing them in a deep, meaningful way, there's no obedience to God. There's no doing Christianity without knowing other Christians. 59 times in the New Testament God gives a command. Each time it takes on the form of this. One another. Love one another. Specifically love other Christians. Help one another. Pray with one another. Serve one another. Do not give up meeting together with one another. You can't one another by yourself. Without having relationships to other Christians, you can't be obedient to at least 59 commands of God in the New Testament. With no relationship with Christians, there's no obedience to God. If we want to be Christians, we can't do Christianity in isolation. So what should the church look like? What is a picture of what a church should look like? It should look like this. Church is about God's people graciously functioning together with Jesus as their head to advance his kingdom using the tools he's given, his word and his sacrament. That's what the church should look like, us working together in community, working together collaboratively using the tools God has given us, the word of God, his sacraments, to advance his kingdom. So here's what I want to do for the rest of our time this morning. That's what it should look like theoretically. Let's talk very, very practically, very applicably about what that looks like for each one of us. And let's do that by looking at our section of God's word that we're focusing on for our sermon this morning, Hebrews chapter 10. We'll read just the last two verses. The writer to Hebrews says this, "'Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching.'" Here we find two very important things that God says the church is, that God says the church does. And the first is this, practically the church is us spurring one another on. It is us spurring one another on. And what does that mean? Why does it repeat itself? That there is spurring one another and giving encouragement to another. Well, there's two actually very different Greek words there. The first one has this idea of sharp encouragement. It looks kind of like this, uh, a toothpick. And to give someone sharp encouragement, to spur someone on, it requires that you maybe give them a poke. It, you go up to them and you poke them a little bit so that they, they stop doing what they have been doing. It hurts a little. But it's not to hurt them. It's not to harm them. It's to do this. It's to spur them on towards love and good deeds. And here's the thing about spurring other people on. You can't do it from an arm's length away. I can't spur Scott on from right here. I can't just spur him on and give him a little poke from right here. I need to be with him. I need to be present with him in his life, giving him a poke doing that for him. And the reason is this. If I'm over here spurring one another on, launching toothpick missiles at him, it's going to come across as judgment. It's going to come across as trying to control him. It's going to come across as me looking down on him, trying to tell him what to do. But the picture that the writer to the Hebrews uses here isn't the picture of a bridle. That is what's used to control a horse. It's the picture of a spur. It's the picture of a little thing, a little kick to the horse to get it going in the right direction. Admittedly, what the writer to the Hebrews is talking about is a, is a tendency for Christians, for all people, to be lazy, to not move, to not go anywhere, to remain by themselves. And so he says, let's not give up meeting together, but instead let's spur one another on. A little poke, a little love to encourage one another. Admittedly, almost ashamedly, this is something you see the rest of the world doing very, very well. You know why Weight Watchers is a very excellent weight loss program? You know why Alcoholics Anonymous is a very excellent recovery program and CrossFit gyms throughout the United States are continuing to explode? It's because they're picking up on something that Jesus talked about 2,000 years ago, that doing things individually doesn't work well. We need accountability. We need other people there. That's what all of those programs have. They have peer accountability. People spurring one another on, poking each other, even when it's unpleasant, but doing it not to control them, not to belittle them, but to do it, to move them towards good things, to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. But it's not just that intense poking. Oftentimes it's this as well. We need fellow Christians, Christians close, one another to encourage one another. That's the, that's the next fill-in-a-blank that we're looking at. Practically, the church is us encouraging one another and doing it all the more as you see the day approaching. The word here is very different than spurring one another on. It's not the picture of sharp encouragement, but actually the Greek word is this: it's parakeelitis, which is the same word that is used for the Holy Spirit. He is a paraclate. He is an encourager. The picture doesn't look of coming along and poking someone, but it looks more like this coming along and putting your arm around somebody, encouraging somebody, giving them a warm embrace. And that too is not something that you can do from a distance. You can't encourage someone who is not next to you. You can't be encouraged by someone who's next to you. There's such this sentiment in our world that when things are not going well, when we need some spurring on, when we need some encouragement, that people who ask, hey, how you doing? You either don't tell them, you kind of put up a front or you just say it's none of your business. But that's not what God designed his church to be. He designed it to be a place of openness, of transparency, of wholeheartedness where you can share this so that we can do what we are practically supposed to be as a church. People who spur one another on, who encourage one another. And get this, this is where the rubber hits the road that it's not just us coming into one another's lives and offering our best advice. It's not just coming along and giving fine-sounding platitudes like, come on, you got this, go, you go. What this requires is us coming along and being as close to people as Christ is Close to us, us being as close to Him and us coming along and encouraging them with the message, the good news that there is no division between them and God, but they have one, a great high priest who has restored that right relationship. It's us coming along and encouraging one another with the Holy Spirit, with the Word of God that He gives. I mentioned this earlier. We're entering a new season of a church year. The season called Advent. We sing hymns like the one we opened up with, a favorite. O come, O come, Emmanuel. It's a prayer. It's a prayer of God's people to come and be Emmanuel, to be God with us. That's what Emmanuel means. And God answers that prayer. God answers that prayer by coming to be with us, coming to be for us. And get this, coming to be one of us. Advent is a time of of quiet reflection on the coming of Christ, but it's nothing to keep quiet about. It's Christ leaving his home, leaving his heavenly home and giving up all that he had there to make this world his home but for a time, to make the cross his residence, but not permanently, to make the grave a place where he did not live, but his life was gone, a place where he rested, but not for always, but for a purpose so that he could be with us forever and give us a heavenly home. That's what we celebrate with Advent. That's what we celebrate when we come alongside one another, encouraging one another, spurring one another on towards love and good deeds. It's, a, it's kind of a beautiful thing that our sermon series that talked all about the blessings of having a faith family wraps up as we begin our celebration of Advent. In a way, we wouldn't know what it looks like to love one another without the example of Christ without him coming and spurring each other on, sometimes poking us, sometimes saying things that don't really sit well with us, but doing it for love and goodness. We wouldn't know what it looks like to truly encourage one another, to really be okay with letting people come into an arm's length, with with us allowing others to come within an arm's length of us and give us love and encouragement, were it not for Christ who didn't just rule all things from heaven above, although he could have, but making himself lower, even lower than angels, and coming to be born and be with us, be here among us. It's, it's a great tie-in. It's a great wrap-up to the series that, that as we celebrate the gifts that we have as a family— We look at how Christ gave us that example. And he didn't just give us the example. He made it completely and utterly possible. You take the idea of of being an individual and you take it to its logical end, that you're someone who is by themselves always and and better off that way. Well, that results in, in being alone for eternity. And that's called hell. But what we have here is is the antidote to that. We have Christ coming to be with us and and he suffered that unique punishment of hell, the aloneness, the loneliness of hell. And he suffered it on the cross when he looked to the heavens, when he looked to his God and he said, why have you forsaken me? And he did it so that we would never know that loneliness, so we would never have to suffer that isolation and individualism forever and eternity to hell. He did it that so forever and ever we could be with him together as a family in eternity. And it's to the degree, it's to the degree that we believe that, that we recognize that, that we get to share that with one another. We get to share all of the blessings of that with each other and we get to let more and more people know about the adoption they have into their family, their family. I opened up this series with this question. Ask the question, does this place feel like home? Does your church feel like home? And I get it, for a lot of people, a lot of time it doesn't because it's harder. It's hard work. Very often sometimes there's failed expectations. People hurt one another and it it doesn't induce and bring about all the things that are associated with Christianity, like like blessings and joy, but it, it brings hard things. So here's what I'm asking. I'm here asking you to be like Christ to forgive to forgive all of the instances where where there was something that happened that that left a bad taste in your mouth and and not just let it go but let it go in the hands of Christ who can do something real with hurt he can give healing forgive I'm asking that and I'm asking this that, that you make the church the type of church you always hoped it would be. You do that by, by being the community that everybody needs. You be the community that everyone's looking for. You be the one who, who spurs one another on. You be the one who encourages one another. You be the one who does not let each other give up meaning together, as some people are in the habit of doing. But you be that person. And it requires us being here, together, gathering together around God's word. That's what I'm asking. And I'm asking it passionately. I'm asking it, and I won't stop asking it. And here's why. I want to read our lesson for today, the last two verses, one more time. In Hebrews It says this, it says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more, and all the more as you see the day approaching. The day, capital D, day that it's talking about, is the day when Christ will come again. It's a day that we look forward to, that Christian people look to, forward to with great anticipation because we get to be with him forever in heaven. We get to hear him say, welcome home. But we do this. We do this all the more as that day approaches because it's the time that we have to look at others and say to them, welcome home. Amen. Amen.